Ms. Featherstone and the Beast by Bethann Roberts. If women ruled the world, said his English teacher, there would be no more wars. Her name was Ms. Amber Featherstone. But Miss, said Wayne Collett, they all called her Miss. Even Stevie couldn't bring himself to utter that strange thrumming zzz in mzz. Maggie Thatcher's a woman, miss, and you hate her, miss. As the class erupted into laughter and argument, Ms. Featherstone crossed her pale, naked legs. No other adult in the school had naked legs, apart from the PE teachers, and their calves were shaped like bags of golf balls. Today, she wore turquoise shoes and a grey skirt that hugged her thighs. Thatcher's not a real woman, said Ms. Featherstone. Sarah Figgs put up her hand and said, She's done a lot for the women's cause, miss. She hates feminists, said Ms. Featherstone. Stevie had seen Ms. Featherstone's first name on a letter whilst photocopying in the secretary's office, a special privilege reserved only for him as editor of the school newspaper, Amber. Like her, it had seemed too glamorous to be real. He had looked it up in the dictionary, hoping for poetry. On finding the words hard, translucent, fossilised resin, he had closed the dictionary, unsure if he was disappointed or enthralled. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher is a powerful woman who hates feminists. Discuss, said Miss Featherstone. She smiled delightedly. At him, it seemed. A few weeks earlier, Steve's older brother, Mike, had left for the Falklands. Stevie didn't miss him much. Mike was noisy, always crunching on a bag of monster munch or swigging on a Coke, belching for real or making belching noises with his hand in his armpit. But there was a strange quietness to the house without him. It was a quietness that Stevie's parents did their best to eradicate. Every evening since Mike's departure, Stevie's father would sit in his puffily upholstered armchair and read aloud from newspaper articles about the war. I saw my missile hit the back of the enemy aircraft. It exploded as advertised. His plane was in flames. Above his thick hair, a ceramic screech owl flew across the chimney breast, claws stretched towards the geometric pattern on the carpet. After a few sentences, Stevie's mother would silently remove herself to the kitchen, shut the door and turn on her cassette player. Then she danced. She had a fondness for full-skirted dresses, the like of which Stevie had seen nowhere else in town, and when Stevie watched her danced, they seemed to fill the room with their colour and movement. Sometimes he joined her and had to remember to grimace as she twirled him beneath her outstretched arm. Last night, his father came into the kitchen while Stevie was dancing with his mother. A Motown song was playing, and her face was becoming greasy with perspiration. Stevie could smell chip fat and perfume on her collar. His father stood and watched them for a minute before saying, Smoky, that's the stuff. Then he reached for Stevie's mother's arm. Give her to me, he told his son. I'll show you how it's done. And he pulled her into a tight embrace against the plaid of his shirt, which made her close her eyes and prompted Stevie to leave the room. At school... 
Stevie was always alert to her presence. You never knew when Miss Featherstone might enter a room unannounced. And so, when she pushed the double doors open and stood, chin held high, scanning the rows during his Learning for Life lecture, Stevie wasn't that surprised. Mr. Roth and the rest of the room watched in silence as, without apology, she caught Stevie's eye, waved a folder in his direction, and began ploughing towards him. She slapped the folder, the proofs for that month's school newspaper, on the desk and hissed, not quietly enough, the masterpiece. Stevie's ears burned with shame and pleasure. Mr. Roth said, don't let me interrupt you, Ms. Featherstone. The class sniggered. Ms. Featherstone exited with a jaunty wave in Stevie's direction. Later, she caught Stevie in the dinner hall and said she wouldn't be able to make their scheduled final editorial meeting. He should check with his parents first. But her suggestion, therefore, was for a meeting on Saturday morning at her house. She would pick him up at 10 o'clock. He didn't ask his parents. He told them the night before what was happening. His mother said, isn't she the feminist one? Stevie said he thought she was. That's all right then, she said. Why is that all right? Asked his father from behind his newspaper. Well, you know, they're not generally predatory. <laughs> his father snorted. Not generally pretty, you mean? Oh, I don't know. Some of them are quite attractive. Name one. There was a pause. After a while, his mother ventured, Miriam Stoppard? When he'd stopped laughing, his father re-erected his newspaper and muttered, She'll have him up at Greenham before you know it, waving banners, burning bras. I don't think men are allowed up there, George. My point exactly, June, said the newspaper. Ms. Featherstone drew up outside the house. To Stevie's relief, she stayed where she was and peeped the Minnie's horn. Hurrying towards the car, he was aware of his mother monitoring his progress down their narrow pathway. Is that your mum? Ms. Featherstone asked. Every fibre of his being wanted to deny that the woman in the loud, huge skirt, standing in the path with her arms crossed, was his mother. But as he secured his seatbelt, he could smell Ms. Featherstone's hair, deeply soil-like, strangely sweet, and he nodded. She looks nurturing, said Miss Featherstone, driving away. Alone with Miss Featherstone. Alone with Miss Featherstone. She was alone with Amber in a small enclosed space, the suburbs disappearing behind them. He'd, managed, he'd imagined many times this kind of journey. He took a breath and tried to remain alert to every detail so he could replay the scene later on in the dark. She wrenched the gear stick, wound down the window to let out her cigarette smoke. He watched the grey plume disappear and wished he had his own cigarette. They were on a busy shopping street now, lined by Mr Minnit, Gateway, and several shops with Arabic lettering on the windows. Boxes of red peppers and aubergines spilled onto the pavement. Your brother's gone to the Falklands, hasn't he? Cornwall, blurted Stevie. He's actually gone to Cornwall. She looked puzzled. 
Well, he's in training, the Navy, Helston. Uh, he wants to go to war, though. I don't understand that, she said. Do you? He thought of what his father had said when Mike made the announcement. Going to war for old iron knickers? Are you insane? But he'd smiled as he said it and held his son's shoulder. Then he'd drawn him in for a bear hug. Stevie had shared a bear hug with his father only once when, after years of trying, he'd finally learned how to ride a bike. No, said Stevie, I don't understand it at all. Mike had later confessed that joining the Navy seemed a better option than the dole queue or cutting out medical implements at the local factory. Her knee, clothed today in a tight pair of pink cotton trousers, brushed the gear stick. Well, let's hope Maggie doesn't bring in conscription, she said with a half smile. Then she took her hand off the steering wheel and placed it on his arm. He couldn't be sure if she meant to leave her fingers there for longer than a beat, but he was sure that she sighed. Miss Featherstone sighed, and Stevie sighed too. Her house was a small terraced place in the east of the town. It reminded him of Pigeon Street, all red bricks, multicoloured fanlights and small cars lining the curb. Inside, the smell of damp and fried onions greeted him. Hello, she shouted, swinging her bag and jacket onto the banister and peering up the stairs. Perhaps she had a housemate. There was certainly no ring on her wedding finger. He had checked many times. Stevie stared as a large man in a fluffy dressing gown descended the stairs. Not dressed yet, Miss Featherstone asked the man. The man yawned in response. She tutted. Stevie, this is Barney. Barney, Stevie. Barney? As in rubble? <laughs> the man raised his chin in greeting. It was as rectangular and definite as a brick. Then he stepped in front of Stevie and ruffled Miss Featherstone's hair. Making coffee, he asked. She smoothed her blonde bob back into place but made no other protest. Instead, she went through to the kitchen and filled the kettle. Barney slowly climbed back upstairs, the muscles in his calves jostling for space as he walked, leaving Stevie gawping after him in the hallway. After handing him a mug of coffee, she said with a roll of her eyes, better take one to the beast, and she disappeared. Stevie took the opportunity to look around the living room. A high shelf ran from one end of the room to the other, lined with orange-spined paperbacks. Through the low-window hyacinths splayed their greenness onto the path. On the fireplace were a couple of burnt-down candles and a framed black-and-white photograph of a couple on their wedding day. Mum and Dad, said Miss Featherstone, returning and standing close behind him. Happiest day of their lives. Or at least I hope it was, since they spent the rest of them fighting. He took a swig of burning coffee. That's usual, though, isn't it? Is there a usual? There is in my house, said Stevie. He was aware this sounded more dramatic than it actually was. The truth was that his mother and father got along fairly well, despite regular rows. What Stevie had really started to hate were their habitual intimacies. The way his father would often stroke his mother's forearm whilst he spoke, as if, Stevie thought, to silence her. 
the way his mother would brush his father's hair before he left the house and tut admiringly at the density of it. But Miss Featherstone didn't seem to have heard. She was looking towards the doorway, where Barney was now standing, wearing a pair of jogging bottoms and a sweatshirt emblazoned with the words Corpus Christi. I'm off then, he raised a hand in salute. Where are you going, she asked. Tennis, he said, bringing his racket out from behind his back as if displaying the proof. With Adam? He nodded. I, I thought Adam couldn't play this morning. He changed his mind, said Barney, gazing at the ceiling. He, he called, did he? Asked Ms. Featherstone. Barney turned on his heel. Yep, see you later, news hounds. Stevie thought Ms. Featherstone might follow Barney. He had never seen her look as beautiful as she did now. Biting her bottom lip, her cheeks flushed, she seemed to him to tremble like a wronged heroine in a Thomas Hardy novel. She made an almost imperceptible movement towards the door, then stopped herself. After a moment, she said, Tennis, with the sort of contempt she usually reserved for the word Tories. <laughs> Shall we look at the proofs, he asked, hoping she would see the softness in his eyes. Their front page headline was, Call for real tracing paper goes to council. There was a photograph of Sarah Figgs handing a petition to Councillor Jennings. Ms Featherstone had encouraged them to protest about the school's dwindling tracing paper supplies. They were often sent from maths to fetch toilet paper as a substitute, calling it the thin end of the funding wedge. Other stories including a vox pop, included a vox pop on the relevance of P.E. during this time of political unrest and an investigation into the hypocrisy of the school's anti-smoking policy. Stevie knew from previous editions of the paper that it was supposed to be a light-hearted and positive publication, but Ms. Featherstone had encouraged him to produce something more challenging for his first issue as editor. Now, though, she looked at the pages they'd spread on the floor and seemed unable to recognise any of them. Looks great, doesn't it? Stevie ventured, unsure of what exactly he should be doing in an editorial meeting. She sat back on her heels. You've done a good job, Stevie. You should be proud. He smiled. She might utter the word masterpiece again. His ears began to warm at the thought. Instead, she looked at her watch. Uh, why don't you have a last read-through? I've got to make a couple of calls. Then we can sign off. Is there anything I should be looking for in particular? He asked. But she was already heading for the door, a hand in her hair. While she was gone, he strained to hear her conversation. But all he could make out were the words, bloody typical of him. The first Stevie knew of the trouble was when Mr. Roth approached him in the overheated craft block, a copy of the newspaper held aloft. And I quote, he said, rattling the paper, this school's anti-smoking policy is yet another example of the hypocrisy with which the place is riddled. The teachers stink of nicotine. Why shouldn't we sneak the occasional fag behind the bike sheds? <laughs> For a moment, Stevie smirked. Then Mr. Roth said, Mr. Perlman wants to see you now. 
Stevie had never before been summoned to the deputy head's office, and he found himself rather excited by the prospect of a showdown with Norman Perlman. Perlman was famous for spitting. As he talked, he left foamy globs on his jumper. The problem seemed to be that his lips were too large for his beard. In his office, which was the size of a cupboard and stacked high with copies of Deutsche Heute, they sat at opposite sides of the table, Stevie's heart thudding as Perlman stroked his knitted tie. Between them, the newspaper lay open. Finally, Perlman said in a sad tone, this is your first issue as editor, isn't it, Stevie? Stevie nodded. That's a shame, because if there was going to be a next time, which there won't, of course, you'd know better. Perlman wiped his spittle-spotted jumper. Good journalism means sticking to the facts. No one wants your opinions, he sighed. It's her I blame, Featherstone. I'm presuming it was all her idea. Not really, sir. But the tone of it, Stevie, that's her, isn't it? It's her all over. We wanted it to be challenging, sir, and entertaining. He remembered her words, more quality supplement than local rag. A bell rang. Look, said Perlman, if you like, just tell me that she put you up to it. Then we'll forget it, okay? It'll be off the paper, but there'll be no other punishment. He leant forwards and spat purposefully. We all know what she's like. Show her a line and she'll step over it. But she didn't write any of it, sir. Perlman laughed softly. <laughs> These women, they get a bit of power and they go hysterical. Miss Featherstone had nothing to do with it, Stevie flushed. He remembered her Thomas Hardy heroine look on Saturday and felt they had something in common now. They'd both been wronged and he was going to make a stand. Have it your own way, said Perlman, and you can have two weeks' detention too, now get lost. In bed that night, Stevie thought about how he'd tell Ms. Featherstone what he'd done. I did it for you, he'd say, and she would put her fingers on his arm, give that sigh of hers and say, you shouldn't have. Would they kiss? He wasn't sure. This was, he knew, the next logical step in his fantasy. <laughs> and it was a scenario he tried often to imagine, especially under the covers after 11 o'clock at night. But it seemed slightly jarring, disappointing even. It, it, it wasn't the kiss that he wanted the most, although he did want it. It was something less defined and harder to imagine. On the edge of sleep, a word came to him. Admiration. He thought that maybe he wanted Miss Featherstone's admiration. The following day, she wasn't at school. She wasn't there the next day either. Instead, Norman Perlman appeared in Stevie's English lesson and told them that, owing to personal circumstances, Miss Featherstone would not be back that term. After school, Stevie took the bus to where she lived and loitered outside her house gathering the courage to walk to her door. He was careful not to lean against her car, even though he wanted to touch the door handle, the petrol cap, the bonnet, any place her fingers had been. A cool wind blew up the street, making the hyacinths that grew up her front path shiver. As he rang the bell, 
He had some phrase in his head, something like now or never or do or die, some phrase with or in the middle that his father or Mike might use. That afternoon, during double physics, he'd written out what he was going to say. I know what they've done to you, what they do to all powerful women, and we have to fight back. But now the only thing in his head was this idea of a phrase with or in the middle. She opened the door a crack leaving the safety chain on, and peered at him. Oh, she said, it's you. Can I talk to you? I can't really talk right now, Stevie, I'm sorry. But there's something I need to tell you. Yes? He could see only an eye and a slither of her pale neck. Instead of reciting what he'd written, he blurted, I didn't say anything about the newspaper. What? She sounded very tired. In case you think it was me who got you sacked. He took a breath, remembered some of his script. It's the system, isn't it? The system that can't deal with powerful women. But I stood up for you, miss. She shut the door. He heard the click and slide of the chain coming off. And when she opened it again, he gasped. Her right eye was half hidden by purple, swollen flesh, through which ran a deep cut held together by black slashes of stitch. He shuddered and sucked the air audibly through his teeth. <clears throat> then he looked away, uncomfortably aware that he was grimacing at the sight of her. She sighed, and it was a very different sound to the one she'd made when she'd placed a hand on his arm. You'd better come in. She led him through to the sitting room and sat facing away from the window. With the light behind her, her black eye was no longer so pronounced. Stevie breathed out, relieved to be spared a little of its glaring drama. Well, she said, now you know. He wanted to ask her, what the hell happened? Was it Barney? But he found himself unable to speak. He hoped she would fill the silence, but she just sat there staring at him as if he thought in accusation. In his panic, he thought he might cry and had to put a hand to his mouth to steady himself. Oh, for Christ's sake, she said. Beneath the bruise, the rest of her face was grey and her voice sounded grey too. Don't get upset. I can't handle you getting upset. This has nothing to do with you. It was as if she, Ms. Amber Featherstone, had disappeared and been replaced by this hideous bruise. Sorry, he said, gulping back the tears. To avoid looking at her face, he glanced round the room and saw Barney's tennis racket balanced against the windowsill. Was he actually here, still in the house? If he wasn't, then he could be back at any moment. Stevie's heart flapped in his chest. She must have seen him looking at the racket because she said, I keep meaning to burn that bloody thing. So it was... I mean, is he... I mean, where? Oh, she said, don't worry, he's gone. She reached for a cigarette and lit up with a shaking hand. Right, good. I, I mean, she exhaled a long stream of smoke. Stevie, why did you come? He wondered if the beating had given her amnesia. What about his masterpiece? Was all that forgotten too? Well, he began, wiping his sweaty palms on his jeans... Like I said, I wanted to check, you know, about them sacking you, and I wanted to help. 
They haven't sacked me, Stevie. I've taken leave due to... She flicked ash on the carpet. A domestic situation. I think that's what this is. She jabbed her cigarette towards her mangled eye. It's nothing to do with you. Stevie winced. He knew he should want to comfort and hold her, and for a moment he thought of touching her arm the way she had his and sighing in that sympathetic manner. But he stayed where he was, paralysed on her sofa, his eyes constantly flicking towards the taut strings of Barney's tennis racket. Look, could you just go, she said. I'm not really... I can't have this conversation with a pupil just now. He took that in for a second, that word, pupil. Then he rose and bolted for the door, hating himself for the great relief that welled in his chest as he realised that what she'd said was true. This was nothing to do with him. Out in the street, he was filled with violent thoughts. He pictured himself surprising Barney from behind, plunging a large knife straight through the fluff of his dressing gown and puncturing his lung. He imagined kicking Barney into the mud with an army-issue boot, raising a rifle and waiting whilst the beast begged for mercy before shooting him between the eyes. That evening, Mike called home from Helston. The training was going well, he said, but it would be a while before he'd be ready to go into combat. Probably the war would be over before he got to the Falklands. He sounded disappointed. From behind his newspaper, Stevie's father read out the latest news. The Belgrano, which survived the Pearl Harbor attack when it belonged to the US Navy, had been asking for trouble all day. Stevie and his mother left the room. When they were alone in the kitchen together, she told Stevie that Mike's call reminded her of one he had made years ago, whilst on his first school holiday on the Isle of Wight. It was so long awaited, that call, and yet when it happened, neither of them knew what to say. So they'd talked about the food and the weather, and afterwards she'd cried because she'd forgotten to tell her son that she missed him. Stevie listened and nodded, then he handed her a tissue. Don't go, don't you go away. Will you, she said. Don't go and fight any stupid wars. I know it's what men do, but you're different, aren't you? She traced the outline of his face with a fingertip and looked at him for a long time, and he nodded. Then she flicked the switch on the cassette player, and a song came into the room. She recognised, he recognised, the voice as Smokey Robinson's. She had to pull him to his feet, but once Stevie was in his mother's arms and could smell the familiar scent of chip fat and perfume on her collar, he rested his head on her warm shoulder and held her as tightly as he could. His father came in. The girls love a man with a woman's voice, he said. Don't they, June? But Stevie's mother said nothing, and Stevie didn't let go. Instead, he clung to her, letting her dance him around the room, her skirt whirling and whirling like a crazed bird.